0: Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Cambridge in the United Kingdom to speak with Dr. Charlotte Summers about updates in ARDS for 2020.
1: I'm Dr. Charlotte Summers. I'm an academic intensive care physician based at the University of Cambridge in the UK.
0: Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, uh, Dr. Summers. Um, You gave the ATS 2020 uh, virtual talk on the clinical year in review for ARDS. It was a very uh, informative um, presentation and we're really glad that you covered the topics of COVID-19, dexamethasone, vitamin C and open lung ventilation. So why don't we dive ahead and uh, Maybe we can get started. Um, maybe you can tell us in the past year what have we learned about COVID-19 and predictors of outcome.
1: Well, I think one of the most helpful studies is the one that I started with, is from the isaric 4 c consortium. It was published in the British Medical Journal and describes the features of more than twenty thousand patients who were recruited to. The study from UK hospitals I um, accounted for nearly 34% of all the COVID admissions during the time period of the study to the entire UK National Health Service. So I think it had quite good coverage. Um, and what they showed was that the median age of the people who were admitted were 73 years, but just over half of them, so 60% of them were men. Um, and that most people actually who came into hospital had pre-existing comorbidities. Um, And further than that, they had a good look at the kind of symptoms that people presented with and showed that actually most people presented with cough, fever and shortness of breath, but by no means all of them. There were people who definitely presented with clear neurological alterations or gastrointestinal presentations. Um, And in terms of outcome, 41% of people from UK hospitalized patients with covid were discharged alive, 26% of them had died, uh, and 34% of them were still receiving care at the point the study was reported. Um, And in terms of outcomes, the things that seemed to be important, there was a clear mortality signal with increasing age, Uh, being a woman, unlike in so much in life, being a woman with COVID meant that you were more likely to do well than if you weren't, uh, and that's sex at birth. Uh, And there was, a clear association that your outcome was worse if you had chronic cardiac disease, chronic pulmonary disease or chronic renal disease uh, and a few other comorbidities.
0: And what did you take from that? I mean, the fact that uh, men, older men, seem to be at higher risk of death and being a woman is protective.
1: So I don't think we've quite got to the bottom of that. Obviously, this is big observational data, so it's quite hard to make causal inferences from it. Um, But it's a really interesting finding that's been reproduced across various different cohorts, including the intensive care cohort in the UK. Women are a smaller proportion, so only about 25% of the people who got sick enough to come to intensive care. So there's definitely something robust around that, but I don't think we know what the answer is yet.
0: Gotcha. And then the fact that there were so many uh, patients, uh, as you mentioned, who had underlying comorbidities, and we've definitely seen in the United States that um, COVID 19 is exposing a lot of health uh, inequalities and equities, um, particularly those who are at higher risk of you know, diabetes, hypertension.
1: Yes. So it's very clear across a number of health systems, I think, that. COVID-19 has brought into stock focus the health inequalities that exist for all patients and regardless of whether you're in the US system, the UK or European systems, it's been a very consistent signal that people whose health status at baseline was less good have done less well if they've subsequently got COVID.
0: And one thing that struck me about this paper was that at the beginning of this pandemic, there was a lot of concern that uh, patients would just uniformly die uh, from COVID-19, but this data would suggest that a fair proportion of them survive, although the long-term outcomes uh, uh, weren't reported.
1: Yes, so this project is still ongoing, and so they're collecting the long-term outcomes. They just chose to censor it at that point when they've got a decent number of patients um, unpublished the data that they had but they've got an inordinate amount more data I think it's testament to the preparedness of the ISARIC consortium that they've been waiting for the next pandemic because it's inevitable that we always have another one um, with a well-defined case report form an idea about what they're going to collect and I think one of the lessons from the COVID pandemic for me is that preparedness is everything and learning as much as you can, as fast as you can, depends very much on preparedness and joint options. I thought Isarek 4C was a brilliant illustration of why that kind of approach pays dividends.
0: So let's turn our attention to another study that uh, you discussed or reported on, and that was on dexamethasone treatment for ARDS. Um, And this was a study that was published in the Lancet Respiratory uh, Medicine Journal. Maybe you could tell us about it.
1: So this is a study that I found fascinating and I picked because I thought it added something to the field um, that was a field that I personally hadn't really known what to make of. We've done a lot of studies of steroids in odds of different types and different timings Um, and never really found anything convincing. But this seemed a little bit more robust than some of the previous work. and then was rapidly followed up in the kind of literature publication status with recovery and I thought the two of them were actually quite informative. So the Villar study from Lancet Respiratory Spiritually Mention had the hypothesis that early adjunctive dexamethasone in patients with moderate to severe ARDS might decrease the duration of mechanical ventilation and or cause mortality. Now Dexamethasone hadn't been used in an RCT of odds before, despite the fact that we know that it's quite a potent anti-inflammatory. And so they aimed to recruit 314 patients um, and to administer the steroid quite early in patients making the entry criteria. It took them a long time to recruit the patients. So they recruited between March 2013 and December 2018. When the study was stopped, when they'd only recruited 88% of the planned total. But when they analysed the data, they have actually found that the primary endpoint, so ventilator free days at 28 days, actually dexamethasone increased the number of ventilator free days. And looking at the secondary endpoint, it also seemed to demonstrate a mortality benefit. And I thought well, that was really quite impressive. Um, but I think it probably needs to be reproduced before we can be absolutely certain but I think it was something that made me more positive about storage early in the course of odds than I had been previously, which is what kind of piqued my interest.
0: And as you said, a greater effect than actually anticipated, which obviously would have affected the power calculation. Um, so let's turn our oh. attention to the recovery trial, which you mentioned, and maybe you could dovetail that and say why it was so, uh, why such a fascinating trial.
1: So, Recovery is a multi-armed platform study looking at hospitalised patients with COVID based in the UK. To date, they've recruited more than 12,000 patients into the various arms of the study. But this particular arm looked at dexamethasone in hospitalised patients, um, and it's an early report of it. And what they have shown, they did an open-labeled, randomised trial of dexamethasone, uh, and they randomised two to one, so two to usual care, Um, And then one to six milligrams of dexamethadone once a day for 10 days or until hospital discharge. And the mortality, uh, so the primary outcome was 28-day all-cause mortality. Um, And I think I, like a lot of people, had some concerns about giving steroids to patients with SARS-CoV in previous um, viral conditions, so influenza and MERS And in SARS, there was a suspicion that steroids might be detrimental rather than beneficial. So I think the kind of prior for this were that we thought it wouldn't do anything and it might possibly even be harmful. Um, But they recruited 2,104 patients to dexamethasone and 4,321 to usual care. Uh, and very low levels of remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, and other therapies were given alongside that because they weren't in common use in the UK at the time. So it's not confounded particularly by other medications. Interestingly, they found overall that mortality was lower in the dexamethasone group, but that that was when you looked at some pre-specified subgroups that there was a strong signal in people who had invasive mechanical ventilation and the people who received oxygen, but there wasn't a signal in people who were hospitalized but weren't on oxygen, and possibly even a trend towards harm in people who were in hospital but not receiving oxygen. Um, So the actual result of the study, which is appropriately powered, I think, given the size of the sample, went in the completely opposite way to, I think, most of us expected. But being published alongside a study that showed that in ARDS, dexamethasone was of benefit early on in the course of the established disease, and showing the strongest signal in people who mechanically ventilated. I think each study gave each other a little bit more plausibility for me.
0: So, what did you take away from that? Would you, if you had a patient with COVID-19 and ARDS, would you probably give them steroids?
1: Well. So in the UK, the day after the data for recovery was released, the chief medical officer wrote to all hospitals to say that they felt that steroids for people who are hospitalized with COVID and who need oxygen or invasive mechanical ventilation should be standard of care. So I think most people in the UK probably would give steroids under those conditions.
0: There were certain issues that uh, struck me about this paper. Obviously, as you said, it was a preliminary report, so they didn't report on any adverse events uh, during this this study. Um, Maybe you could comment on that because uh, usually we would have the full picture, um, and obviously we're still waiting for the final report.
1: So we are absolutely still waiting for the final report. And more than adverse events, I think what we really need is some longer-term follow-up to make sure that actually this is short-term mortality Was there anything else um, in terms of later safety signals, um, but also later outcomes? I'm not sure that the outcome, although 28-day mortality is something that's thought about for clinical trials, it's not a particularly patient-centric endpoint. And so I think actually there are some other endpoints that it would be good to know about later on.
0: And then what struck me also was the difference in dosing. As you said, for the ARDS um, dosing, I think they used 20 milligrams and 10 milligrams, yes. uh, differing by the first uh, five and uh, five five days and then the day six to 10, whereas with the recovery trial, they stuck with six milligrams daily for up to 10 days. Uh, what did you take from that?
1: So I think six milligrams is a, actually, it's a fairly reasonable dose of steroid. Um, so I don't think that, the six was necessarily underdosing, you could potentially argue that the, uh, the last study was giving more steroids than you needed to. But I think we have only got to the point that we thought using these two studies that steroids might be useful at all, even that's an improvement compared to where we were previously when we would have said for COVID they weren't of use um, and for ART we really weren't sure they were of use. Um, so I think that's where the work is probably needed in both domains. To narrow down on what's the optimum dose uh, and possibly even a bit more about timing, cause calls for enthusiasm that we've had in that area for a while.
0: That's true. And then uh, you alluded to this, and, and it also struck me that um, for the dexamethasone in early to moderate, to, to, uh, for the dexamethasone in moderate to severe ARDS, it took about five years to recruit those patients, whereas for the recovery trial, um, we had results out in less than six months in almost 2,000 patients, and it seems as though we've always struggled in critical care trials to um, have adequate power, adequate numbers to address a question, and one of the, uh, I wouldn't say it's an upside, but w- w- one of the results of COVID-19 is that we can actually answer some really pressing questions uh, in critical care. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yes. So uh, if there are upsides to a pandemic, one of them is that you get a large number of admissions from a single etiology in a short space of time. And so if we're doing clinical trials, actually, it probably improves the quality of being able to do the trial. But also the kind of tension with that is that you do have a large number of patients, which means there's a large number of people who need clinical services to be delivered alongside a research effort. Um, and so the stress is in both directions, but you can certainly see how you might generate a slightly cleaner and faster result in the middle of something like the COVID pandemic than you would over five or seven years worth of trying to carefully recruit odds patients with multiple etiologies.
0: So let's turn uh, our attention to vitamin C and uh, prior to COVID-19, uh, vitamin C was receiving a lot of press and it had definitely got out to uh, the, the, the layman as well on whether or not vitamin C and thiamine and steroids would be of benefit uh, in general in critical care. And uh, you rep- uh, um, you discussed uh, the role of vitamin C in patients with sepsis or uh, severe um, acute respiratory failure.
1: I did. Um, actually, when I was originally writing this talk, thinking that the conference was going ahead in... December, January, this is what I thought would be the most controversial and the main bit of my talk um, before the COVID pandemic happened um, and the recovery of the steroids things came through um, because the kind of talk about vitamin C was everywhere, really. Um, so what this study was, was looking at whether vitamin C would reduce organ failure and biomarkers of inflammation and vascular injuries in patients with sepsis and ARDS it was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled multi-center study carried out in seven MITQs in the United States. And it enrolled patients who were admitted to the ICU for sepsis who required mechanical ventilation via an endotracheal tube uh, who developed ARDS and MET-sepsis criteria, or two of the four SERS criteria, within a 24-hour period. Their end point was that they wanted to use a modified SOFA score at 96 hours. And the modification essentially was that Billy Mubin was removed, uh, and also plasma C-reactive protein and thrombomodulin at 168 hours post enrolment or post randomization uh, And they had 46 pre-specified secondary endpoints. Um, they had protocolised mechanical ventilation, uh, you know, the kind of alternate standards of care and conservative fluid administration. Uh, And the intervention they used was 50 milligrams per kilogram every six hours of vitamin C, so not thiamine or anything else, uh, just for 96 hours. Um, What they showed was that even with that careful kind of recruitment criteria, three of the patients were excluded after randomization because they turned out actually not to have sepsis-induced ARDS. Two of them had diffuse alveolar hemorrhage and one had an eosinophilic pneumonia. Um, So they ended up with 86 randomized to vitamin C uh, and 84 randomized to placebo, but slightly less than that in each group um, in the actual analysis due to having removed those three patients. The primary endpoint showed that vitamin C had no impact on modified SOFA or serum CRP or thrombomodulin concentrations at 96 hours. Um, And 43 of the 46 pre-specified outcomes weren't significantly different What they did show was that ventilator-free days at 28 days were improved from 10 to 13 in the vitamin C group, um, and the ICU-free days went along with that. They're improved from 7 ICU-free days in the placebo group to 10.7 in the vitamin C group, uh, and a suggestion that there was a mortality benefit, too, um, with a hazard ratio of 055 that were thought to be significant, but this is one of 46 separate endpoints. So I think it's a little hard to be anything else other than hypothesis generating at this point because it wasn't the primary endpoint of the study. That didn't show anything. So yet more work I suggest that shows that we still don't actually know that there is a role for vitamin C in sepsis, or indeed in odds. Um, the jury at best is still out, but at worst has probably shown that actually what we were being told early on was the miracle cure might not be quite so miraculous.
0: Yes, yeah, especially considering the fanfare it received. Um, and then let's turn to the last uh, study that you reported on um, uh, dealing with open uh, lung strategies. So what is an open lung strategy and um, w- what did the study show? Uh, does it have a role in patients with moderate to severe AODS?
1: So I picked Farlap um, for a couple of reasons, but one of which I think it's worth highlighting. But I thought it was one of the best written up studies that I've seen in a while. I thought that it was really carefully presented by the authors um, with a really thoughtful discussion. And um, I thought that that was something that should be recognized um, and that would be good for all of us to learn from. The hypothesis of the study and an open lung strategy is essentially one that has permissive hypercapnia, alveolar recruitment, and low airway pressures, um, and they use a maximal lung recruitment alongside that um, using recruitment manoeuvres and PEEP titration, and they hypothesized that that would increase ventilator-free days in patients who had moderate to severe odds compared to um, the kind of standard of care control protective ventilation. It was a multi-centre controlled trial in 35 ICUs in five countries that compared the net low tidal volume, low peak protocol um, with no recruitment manoeuvres with this far-lap strategy, which was pressure-controlled ventilation, a tidal volume of 4 to 6 mL per kilogram, plateau pressures of less than 28, and a daily maximal recruitment manoeuvre with peak titation for the first five days. Now, the endpoint they were using again was ventilator free days at twenty-eight days after randomization. Uh, and they planned to recruit three hundred and forty patients. But after the ART study was published, the trial management committee decided to halt recruitment um, because of safety concerns and perceived loss of equipoise. Um, so when they analyzed the data, they found that there was no difference in ventilator free days by day twenty eight uh, and no difference in mortality barotrauma. trauma. Um, and various other endpoints that they were looking at in the secondary endpoint category. Um, And when they meta-analysed both their data and four RCTs that looked at similar maximal open lung approaches, they showed no difference in hospital mortality, um, but there was potentially an increased risk of barotrauma. So I think the authors rightly concluded that an open lung mechanical ventilation strategy, including maximal recruitment manoeuvres and peak titration, actually didn't have benefit over a conventional lung protective ventilation approach for people with moderate to severe odds.
0: And uh, I agree with you, They're a very useful discussion and, and definitely worth reading. Um, so based on these papers that you chose and uh, presented, what were your take home messages and what studies should we be looking out in the coming year? based on these papers that you think would uh, add more data or add more clarity on unanswered questions?
1: So I think the take home messages for me would be that COVID-19 is a respiratory viral pandemic with a significant mortality benefit. um, And that whilst most people present with the classical triad of fever, shortness of breath and cough, not everybody does. So it's important we don't miss the non-respiratory presentations. Um, and that maybe it's time to have another think about steroids in odds, given that the Villar study and recovery have both suggested that dexamethasone, which we haven't really tried in randomized controlled trials before, might be a benefit. I think the citrus alley study probably doesn't add a huge amount to what we already know about vitamin C, but may add a little bit of weight to the argument that it's not a miracle cure as yet. Um, and I think Open lung ventilation, it strengthens the ARCH results that we've discussed at the ATS the year before, suggesting that those techniques may not actually be of benefit. So we probably shouldn't be using anything other than conventional lung protective ventilation. What do I think we need to look out for in the coming year? I suspect, for obvious reasons, most of what comes out over the coming year is going to be COVID related. Lots of other research studies have had to go on hold because of COVID. Um, and there's lots of COVID patients about. So uh, I think I would very much like to see, particularly topical today, the convalescent plasma results coming out of both REMAP CAP, the um, global platform trial for people who are in intensive care who've got COVID 19, um, but also a convalescent plasma results from recovery. I think those will be quite informative and tell us whether that therapy actually does work. Um, after, it sounds like it's going to have had emergency usage in the United States via the FDA um, EUA process. Uh, and I think there's a few other immune modulatory therapies that are going to come out of those platforms too that will help us understand a little bit more about what works for coronavirus and what doesn't.
0: Well, Dr. Summers, uh, you've given us a very informative uh, um, uh, podcast, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. I do want to give you um, uh, the final word on any uh, concluding remarks that you'd like to make to our audience, and to thank you again for taking the time to review a lot of literature and uh, give us a really great uh, synopsis of uh, what we needed to know from uh, critical care in the past year. Uh, Your final word?
1: Thank you so much for asking me to talk to you. Um, And thank you very much for the people that have listened to the talk, both via the ATS website um, and now the podcast. It's much appreciated.
0: No, you did an absolutely stunning job. And thank you for taking the time. You take care.
1: Thank you. Bye bye.
0: A big thank you to Dr. Summers. And a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breed Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.